Nescapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo library with a few pit stops along the way. We play them briefly, judge them harshly, and rank them. That is pretty much all you need to know. I am Steampunk Link. I am Emmy Zero. And today we are finishing up April. April? Yep, April. April of 1993. We've got two games left in that month. Uh, one of them, another licensed thing. Like the licensed stuff from last time. Although uh, this one, I think, fares considerably better than any of the three games we played last time. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and uh, one one classic, uh, such a classic that it got re-released recently. And we will talk about that when we get there. But uh, but yeah, we've got Tom and Jerry and the Lost Vikings. Yeah. Uh, so I don't really have anything else to say as like preamble. Uh, do you want to just uh, jump right into it? I think we might talk about some Tom and Jerry first, get that out of the way, save the best for last. You know how it is. Oh, yeah. What is your relationship with Tom and Jerry as a franchise? It was on TV a lot when I was a kid, so I watched it. I actually liked a kind of slim portion of what I saw of it. There's various versions of Tom and Jerry that were all kind of just sort of, you know, coexisting on TV in the, the early 90s. So, you know, I didn't really know when anything was made, but I could tell there were like different Tom and Jerry's. Uh, you know, there were the ones that had really nice, pretty animation. There were ones that had animation that looked a lot more like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Uh, and there were some really like weird, cheap looking ones, too. So I didn't know what any of those were, but I, I would watch it. And uh, they made a not great Tom and Jerry animated movie when I was a kid where they talk and sing. Yep. That was a weird thing. Like they both talked and they talked to humans and like they were working together. And it, it was like this this sob story with like a girl. And yeah, there was like a little little orphan girl or something. No. And, and that movie has a very strange conceit, uh, which is the idea not only that they can talk, but that they have always been able to talk, but they just never never said anything to each other, so each of them assumed the other one could not talk. And I did see that. It's a bad movie, and it was a thing I, I kind of knew was not great even when I was a kid. As an adult, I've never really held any particular special fondness for Tom and Jerry, but, you know, it is what it is. That's pretty much it for, for me and Tom and Jerry. What about you? So my dad is actually a pretty big fan of Tom and Jerry, um, I, I think this and The Simpsons are maybe the only two cartoons he's ever liked. We had like a VHS copy of a random assortment of Tom and Jerry cartoons, one of which I know is from the, the Chuck Jones era because of the opening. The others, I think they were all from the early Hanna-Barbera era. Yeah, it was just like a grab bag of, of Tom and Jerry cartoons and um, a lot of really good ones, like the one where Tom learns to play the piano so that Jerry can start dancing so he can try and lure him out. And Yeah, that is a good one. Yeah. So anyway, I'm not going to talk too much about the history of high tech expressions today. I know we've already talked about them before. They, they are not going to be much longer for the world um, as of 
1993. I, th- I believe they closed their doors two years after this, um, which does mean that a lot of games that they had in various states of production will never see the light of day. And those include games based on Baby's Day Out. Uh, maybe that one for the better. And a second Tom and Jerry game. They weren't the ones who were doing the Socks the Cat game, are they? That's a good question. I, I think that was someone else, but I'm not sure off the top of my head. Socks the Cat Rocks the Hill was developed by Real-Time Associates and was meant to be published by Kaneko. We actually talked about that back in our Chester Cheetah episode, but uh, look, after 60 episodes, sometimes it's hard to remember things. They also were working on a Bobby's World game, which was basically done and a what I am fairly sure is a complete ROM of the game exists, but I don't think it ever actually got commercially released. Yeah, that's that's pretty much the same deal with the Baby's Day Out game. That game's complete and it's out there now. If you really wanted to play it, you could. Oh, goody. Yeah, thrilling, right? We, we should just do a special on all of these games that got canceled but are technically available to play. If we get to the end of all this and we're just like... Oh, we got to keep this going. That is probably what we'll do for a few weeks before shutting everything down. Calling it good. Resting on our laurels forever. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> anyway, so um, back to Tom and Jerry. I thought it might be fun to talk a little bit about the history of Tom and Jerry since, you know, hey, what else are we going to talk about today? So you were talking about how you remember watching a bunch of very different Tom and Jerry cartoons. And yes. There is a reason for those very distinct styles. Uh, Tom and Jerry, much like a... Artists like, say, uh, uh, Picasso, they went through different phases. Their first phase uh, was when they were created by William Hanna and Joseph Barbera in the late 1930s. 1940 actually saw the first proto-Tom and Jerry cartoon called Puss Gets the Boot, which featured a cat that was named Jasper and an unnamed mouse who was referred to as Jinx by the creators. Mm. Uh, This short was a big hit with audiences and netted an Academy Award nomination. The short was directed by Hannah Barbera and Rudolf Easing. I think that's how you pronounce that. And it was produced by Easing and Fred Quimby, one of the top guys at the Metro Goldwyn Mayer or MGM, which is uh, who released the short and uh, in fact released most of the Tom and Jerry cartoons uh, throughout their history. So after some minor tweaking, the team would work on Tom and Jerry shorts for the next 17 years. And during that time, they would produce 114 shorts, resulting in 13 Academy Award nominations and seven wins, more than any other character-based theatrical animated series. I wonder how much how that compares to the the total number of shorts produced for like Warner Brothers featuring like Bugs Bunny in that classic era. Like that seems like a lot of cartoons for for Tom and Jerry right there. Like that's that's a ton of individual shorts. I mean the thing with Looney Tunes is that you know obviously you've got a lot of different characters Right, sure. You know, to base shorts around. Yeah, I'm sure there's more total Looney Tunes cartoons, but just, like, ones focusing on, like, a specific set of characters. Like, that's that's a really, that's a big, big number. So the characters would even guest star in a few live-action segments, 
Perhaps most famously, Jerry performs an elaborate dance number with Gene Kelly in the 1945 film Anchors Away, making it one of the first films to combine animated characters with live actors in this way. Uh, for reference, Mary Poppins didn't come out until 1964, like almost 20 years later. So, uh, By the late 50s, the rise of television was causing a decline in theater revenue, and MGM found that releasing old cartoons for the new format was just as profitable as producing new ones, and obviously was less expensive. So the studio ceased production on the show, and Hannah and Barbera would leave to form their own studio. And the names Hannah and Barbera are probably best known now for their eponymous studio, which produced cartoons like Yogi Bear, Huckleberry Hound, The Flintstones, Scooby-Doo, The Jetsons, and like probably hundreds more. If you go back to those, to, to the, the MGM shorts they made, they're very expensive looking. They look nothing like what you would ever associate with the name Hannah Barbera now. But yeah, I mean, it's important to note that like Hannah, Hannah and Barbera, when they founded their own studio, studio uh they basically were trying to figure out a way to do animation on the cheap while retaining some elements of quality uh and you know they came up with a format and a process that yeah like we don't tend to look back on it super fondly these days but for the time it was it was a, a pretty big deal uh and it allowed them to make animation on very small budgets very quickly uh, which is, you know, essentially how they had to do it to, to, you know, make it for TV. Speaking of producing cartoons on a really tight budget, um, in 1961, MGM decided to bring back the brand uh, animation studio Rembrandt Films in Prague, Czechoslovakia, current day Czech Republic, were commissioned to make 13 shorts, all of which were written and directed by Gene Deitch. Hoping I'm pronouncing all these names right. Um, these shorts are regarded as more abstract by folks who are, frankly, being polite. Uh, the truth is that the severely decreased budget meant that Deitch had to rely on some pretty green animators and cut a lot of corners. Uh, most refer to the Deitch era of Tom and Jerry as a very dark time for the franchise, uh, producing some very cheap-looking shorts. They're rough. They they really are. Back in in the Hanna Barbera era, they were getting like you know fifty thousand per short to to budget for any given cartoon, whereas like the uh, the Rembrandt Films folks were given like ten thousand. You know, and then this is also, you know, like two decades after the fact, too. So Right. So with inflation and everything, I mean, you just can't make the same things happen on that much of a reduced budget, even if you do have really even if you did have really talented, really seasoned animators, which you like you said, the, the folks uh, that Deitch was employing for this were kind of green. Passion can only get you so far, unfortunately. Luckily for Tom and Jerry, after the release of those 13 shorts, Warner Brothers veteran Chuck Jones uh, had just become a free agent. He had just been fired after a very long tenure with WB. Uh, Jones' new studio, Sib Tower 12, would become the new captain of the franchise. Uh, Jones and his partner, Les Goldman, produced 34 more shorts to mixed reviews, though definitely considered better than the Deech era. Honestly, the Chuck Jones ones that I have seen, I have really liked. Uh, you know, I, I like that... You know, there is kind of a very Looney Tunes-ish sense of style to them and of, I don't know, design to everything that that is is really fun. But after that, Tom and Jerry would bounce around a few different studios, being reunited with their creators, Hannah and Barbera, a couple times. 
once in the 70s to air on Saturday mornings, in which the pair were teamed up and going on adventures together. I uh, I don't think I've ever seen any of these. I don't think I have either. I, I suspect they weren't even trying to replay these in the early 90s when I saw most of my Tom and Cherry. I've never seen these, but I, I just generally don't like the idea of them working together. Like, it seems... It seems wrong somehow. And making matters worse, it was also a, a kind of package show where they were basically sharing a block of TV time with other Hanna-Barbera cartoons like Grape Ape and Mumbly. Oh, boy. Real real A-listers there. Yeah, yeah. Tom and Jerry really pulling up the ticket on that one, I think. Uh -huh. <laughs> They'd also end up with Filmation for a brief time in the 80s before MGM was purchased by Ted Turner and once again landing in the lap of Hanna-Barbera. This time in the 90s and uh, with a Tom and Jerry kids Saturday morning cartoon show that was... Uh, created by the studio and i i remember that one i remember that being on when i was a kid yep so do i it was it was okay i have to admit i don't really remember very much else about this show other than that it existed yeah i remember that they were also trying to bring in like uh droopy into that and oh yeah that's right that's right it, it seems like okay you've got muppet babies being really popular so we're gonna age all the characters down i mean this was a thing Hanna Barbera tried to do with m several of their franchises they also did yo yogi and they did a pup named scooby-doo right i think that honestly in the case of a pup named scooby-doo there that actually was a pretty successful show that a lot of people liked yeah i, I was gonna say i remember liking that one i barely remember yo yogi being a thing there was a gimmick where they had a part of each episode that was supposedly in 3d if you wore the red and blue bad 3d glasses things would kind of pop out of the screen at you oh <laughs> i think yogi bear was coasting on inertia even by that point honestly so in any case um as of 2006 tom and jerry are under the warner umbrella a new movie came out recently that I have not seen and have not heard a single good thing about. Colin Jost is in it. Saturday Night Live's Colin Jost, not generally known for being an actor. At least they don't talk in this one, from what I understand. Uh, they do not talk. Uh, it is a live-action animation hybrid. I will say they did not do a horrifying, pseudo-realistic redesign of the characters, as, as was the case with, like, the Alvin and the Chipmunks movie. put off talking about the game for a long time but honestly it's not bad like compared to a lot anything we played last week it's not bad it is a 2d platform game i would say maybe it's in the vein of well what what would you compare it the most to it's a pretty generic platform game there's not really a lot going on here uh maybe harley's humongous adventure that's another high-tech expressions game, but it's also, I think, the closest comparison to make here. Yeah, it, it almost it kind of reminded me of something like a, a Chippendales Rescue Rangers on the NES, but with a lot less going on. A lot less going on. There isn't anything here as fun as the mechanic from that game where you could pick stuff up and throw it. So you play as Jerry in this, going through a series of, I would say, pretty unconnected level concepts that are all just sort of like generic areas that you might see in a Tom and Jerry cartoon. You know, there's a yard, there's a kitchen. There is for some reason a very strange one that is like the first level where you're inside a movie projector and there's little Frankenstein monsters around. And I don't really get that one. 
you're going through these fairly lengthy levels with a lot of vertical and horizontal platforming. There's little balls of cheese that are essentially this game's equivalent of like Mario's coins. There's little green balls that become projectiles that you can shoot at the various enemies. Jerry cannot uh, duck, which is sort of a problem sometimes in this. Uh, his sprite is quite quite tall for what it is. I found the jump in this game kind of strange because he has two very distinct jumps. He has sort of like a short hop you can do from standing and then a much more expansive jump that you can do if you're moving while you jump. And you really need to be able to do that second one reliably to do the basic platforming in this game. But it's it's kind of strange how different that jump is from the standing jump. I think that with the exception of the jumping, though, this is a pretty simple game. The first level is very easy to complete. Uh, Jerry is, like you said, pretty large on the screen. His sprite is pretty large on the screen and everything is sort of scaled up with him to some extent. But... The challenges that you're tasked with, given, you know, the somewhat limited view that you've got, aren't unreasonable for the most part. We'll get there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Jerry has a projectile, which um, is useful in the boss fight, but I didn't find it all that effective against enemies, like the arc of the projectile sails over most of them. The projectile is useful in that if you do hit something with it, it will kill it instantly, as opposed to having to bounce on it like five or six times to destroy it uh, if you're if you're just jumping on it. Jerry can take a few hits, and there's decently available health refills around the level. Each sort of world of this game, each sort of set of themed levels, is divided into to three... Uh, basically like three sub-levels. And uh, at the end of the last one, there's a boss fight with Tom, who is enormous, by the way. I don't really understand the scale in this game because it's very weird. Like, Jerry seems extremely tiny, even for a mouse. Like, he's about the same size as, like, the various cockroaches you find. But he's also big enough to jump on, like, tires and things. And then at the end of the levels, when you fight Tom, Tom is, like, Godzilla size. He is so big. But that's really the only place where Tom comes into the game at all. For the most part, you're just sort of you know, Jerry avoiding various obstacles and, and monsters uh, or bugs. I was impressed with the first Tom fight is Tom is sort of peering over these crates in the background and, and tries like dropping these little sandbags on you, I guess they were. Yeah, he's really imposing looking like he's a, a big, scary cat for sure. It was impressive on a technical level, too, because I would think that in that instance, Tom is too large to have been a sprite. He's got to be a background layer, right? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I think they kind of did some trickery with the background layer and sort of maybe maybe like Tom's eyes were actually the, the sprite in, in giving them a hitbox and things like that. So yeah. I do think there was some, some interesting stuff going on technologically. For the most part, though, this game is not very impressive looking. Um, it's got a decent rendition of the Tom and Jerry theme music playing through the, the opening and stage transitions it's got some deeply weird music in the levels it just sounds like somebody like noodling on a keyboard making really kind of bad use of the like sound format that the super nintendo uses like there's a lot of stuff here that sounds really discordant and i don't know that it's it's necessarily meant to really odd though yeah, I think overall the presentation is fine, but it is nothing amazing. A lot of like the background elements and stuff are pretty basic, with the exception of the thing with with the Tom fights. I 
wasn't all that impressed. I will say that, like, I think they made, you know, a, a well-functioning, simple platform game that is going to be easy for the younger set to get into, which is, you know, who this game would have mostly appealed to back in the day. Sure. Whereas, like, I think some of the franchises that we looked at last week would have geared towards slightly older kids than the Tom and Jerry game would have geared towards. And I think that maybe like those games were maybe made a little bit too difficult um, because it was assumed that the people playing that might have been a little bit older. Yeah. In any case, you know, this game is fine. I think that because it is a lot more functional than a lot of the games we played last time, I think this one probably goes higher than all those games do. We should talk about the turn this game takes in terms of difficulty. Yeah. So in that second world, this game employs some real BS elements, uh, particularly there are platforms that just fall out from under you when you land on them and you get no time to react. Normally in a video game, you want to try to signal to the player that a platform that they're standing on is going to fall like in Mario three with the donut blocks, they would kind of vibrate a little bit. Or at least just make them look different, you know? Like, make them look like something where you know that if you if you step on that, it's gonna fall. Uh, and this game does not really do that, even in this level. It's just segments of the ground, basically, that look exactly like a bunch of segments that are totally solid, that will just fall the instant you step on them. Uh, it's mean-spirited, it's kind of unfriendly, uh, and it's it happens very suddenly, too, because there's nothing like this in the first set of levels. And then basically as soon as you hit that second world, essentially, in this game, this is what's going on. And it isn't good. Like, I do not enjoy that, and it doesn't make the game better. And even when you do remember where those platforms are, you have so little time to react that you really have to execute almost perfectly to get through some of those platforming areas. Yeah, and there, there's a couple of other things here that I just are sort of questionable decisions like Jerry takes fall damage if he falls from a great height which is okay a lot of games do that but there's also like no indication of like sort of what the point is where you start taking fall damage like it would be nice if like his animation changed a little bit while falling uh, to indicate that he was now kind of, you know, in that sort of danger zone. The other thing that I did want to mention that never really affected me at all, but it is a bit strange, is that at the end of the level, you get, like, tallied up for, like, how many bonus points you get for things like, you know, stuff you collected in the level. There's also a, a thing there where you get points based on how much time you had left. Yes! And there's no on-screen timer during the level levels which i feel like if the levels are timed there really should be yeah that was really strange because i was wondering that myself i completed the stage and it said time remaining i'm like wait yeah i thought maybe i just missed it but then in the second level i'm like no there's no timer here that is so weird maybe it's for like just like bonus points yeah i don't know i never let the timer run out to like see what would happen but it's just a really strange thing because there's no way to view this timer during the stage itself so yeah, I think we've got another pretty, you know, ho-hum platformer here. I mean, it, it is fine, but I don't think it's amazing. I guess we could start from number 69, which is Harley's Humongous Adventure, which we already compared it to at one point, but I 
think Harley's Humongous Adventure is at least more visually interesting than this game. I think so, too. And I think it's got some more gimmicks going on, like different weapons and like vehicle stages and stuff that do kind of break up the action a little bit. Well, actually, I guess this one does have some basically equivalent to the vehicle stages in Harley's Humongous Adventure. This does have the weird, like, skateboarding thing. Yeah, where Jerry's skateboarding on what looks like a movie ticket. Yep, yeah. So, yeah, it's got some stuff. But yeah, I agree. I think that that Harley's Humongous Adventure is at least a more visually interesting game than this. I will say, like, I I think that that skateboarding section adds absolutely nothing to this game. (laughs) Nah, it's bad. It's bad, and it's it's both not different enough from the regular platforming to feel different, but it is annoying in a way that the regular platforming is not, so... I I would drop this down a little bit from there. You know, I'm looking at, like, we got Super Valus 4 and Spider-Man and the X-Men at 74 and 75. I I think those are both better than Tom and Jerry, for sure. Pugsley's Scavenger Hunt at number 80. I don't remember enough about that game. Mm, I just remember it being like the other Adams Family game, but a lot less good. I, don't know, I might put this, maybe say, like, above Lethal Weapon, 84? That sounds good to me, actually, because I think they're not that different in terms of quality level, but I do think this is a more solid platform game than Lethal Weapon was. And I don't think I would put it above Axley, right above it in 83. If for no other reason, then, then Trevor would never let us hear the end of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think let's uh, let's do that. Let's put it between Axley and Lethal Weapon. And I, I'm not just taking a dig at Trevor there. I do not think that this belongs above Axley. Yeah, I, I legitimately think Axley is a, a better game than this. So, yeah. There we go. So, congratulations, Tom and Jerry. Top 100 game. Yep. Which is really saying something, because with that, we now have 180 games on this list. Wow, that's awesome. That's really cool. We have a we have played a lot of games. <laughs> we have. We have played a lot of games, most of them very briefly. <laughs> so let's talk about another one that I think both of us have played a little more extensively than a good number of these games, because we've played it a few times uh, for different different things that we've done. And that is the Lost Vikings. So you want to tell us uh, just a little bit about about where this comes from before we talk about it? Yeah, so I'm pretty sure we've talked about Silicon and Synapse before, uh, but just in case, they were founded in 1991 in Irvine, California by Alan Adam and Michael Morheim. Uh, along with Interplay founder and CEO Brian Fargo. The company was the first American developer to release a Super NES game, that game being RPM Racing. Remember that one? Not an auspicious start, but you know. Interplay collaborated with uh, Silicon and Synapse on this game, and this could possibly be considered the game that really put the company on the map. They would later release Rock and Roll Racing and Blackthorn. The company would be acquired by Davison and Associates in 1994, and that is when they would take on the name Blizzard Entertainment, which would practically become a household name as the developers of huge franchises like Warcraft, Diablo, and Starcraft. The company would bounce around multiple owners before landing at Activision in 2007, where they remain to this day. 
Uh, we've already talked about Activision. In fact, we talked about them in the last episode, so you should know all about them and their vile, awful CEO, Bobby Kotick, who I can't say any more about because I don't feel like spin jumping for 15 minutes again. So, <laughs> yeah, he sucks, though. You know, the Lost Vikings, which I do want to point out, uh, was does originate with this version. This is not like a port from another thing or a game that came out across multiple platforms simultaneously. Uh, I think this sort of shows a lot of the thoughtfulness and overall attention to detail that people tend to play to to praise Blizzard games for a lot. Uh, there's a lot of really well thought out mechanics and visual language here. And yeah, uh, it's a real, it's a whole different ball game from, from RPM racing with this one. Very much so. So this is a puzzle platformer in which you take on the role of three Vikings who have been abducted by aliens and now have to escape the alien ship and later escape various other weird places that they are getting transported to. One of the Vikings is uh, pretty much your typical run and jump 2D side scrolling platformer type of protagonist. Another one has the ability to shoot arrows and use a sword, but he cannot jump. And the third also cannot jump, but he does have a big old shield that will prevent enemies from getting by or prevent projectiles from damaging him. Uh, he can also use the shield as a platform for the guy who's able to run and jump by uh, holding it over his head. He can also use the shield as a sort of a hang glider by falling off of a cliff while he's holding it above him. Three different characters with three very different skill sets. You just switch among all three of them on the fly to accomplish whatever you need to do. Uh, this game is not just about avoiding enemies and defeating enemies, but it is also about item acquisition, finding keys to progress further into levels, deactivating traps, all sorts of things. And all three of the Vikings have their own special skills that come in handy to do one thing or another. It's a really clever idea for a 2D platformer. We've seen a lot of just kind of run and jump 2D platformers or run and gun 2D platformers. This is a, a pretty unique take on that sort of genre. And it's a surprisingly forward thinking game. You have the ability to just give up and start a level over. Uh, there aren't really lives to worry about. So anytime you die or complete a level without all three of your Vikings still alive, which you do need to do to progress. You just get to start right back at the level that you were in. No being sent back to the beginning of the game after you lose a certain amount of lives. And yeah, there's just a lot of really cool stuff in this. It's a very colorful game. A lot of really great production. The Vikings themselves are very animated characters. Um, I, I just love this. What do you think of it? I agree. I agree with everything you just said. And I want to point out one thing that's very good in this game is uh, the way it starts with a, a little non-interactive sequence that effectively just shows the Vikings before they get uh, kidnapped by aliens using all of their moves and explaining them to you. So you go into the first level of this game with a very clear understanding of the basic skills that they have, and those get kind of elaborated on as you go through the game. It's a really good way to start that really kind of just gets you gets you off and running uh, very, very, very well. Each level is a different kind of puzzle that makes use of the Vikings' abilities in different ways. Some of them are much more focused on one Viking than the others. Some of them really do require you to switch 
switch off between all three of them pretty frequently. And yeah, it's a really smart, really fun, charming game. The Vikings talk to each other at the end of each level, and their dialogue is generally kind of funny, which, you know, is impressive. Um, and yeah, like, I just, I think it's neat. I just think it's a really, a really cool game that is thoughtfully put together and kind of just a, a joy to, to play. Uh, also, a game with a lot of content. Uh, there's like 37 levels in this game. So there's a lot of exploration of what they can do with these different abilities. And uh, yeah, I, I just I just think it's really good. Yeah, and I, I want to elaborate a little bit on uh, what you were just talking about, like the intro sequence in which uh, they kind of explain how all their abilities work. It reminds me of Super Mario World, where that game just opens with a sequence of the game sort of just sort of being played on its own. And it gives you an idea of a lot of the mechanics right out of the gate. Now imagine a game with much more, I mean, not a lot more complex move sets, but very specific move sets though, move sets that are designed for particular things. Yeah. So imagine like a game that's, it's a little bit more complex than Mario and still managing to explain itself in a non-interactive way within, you know, like less than a minute. This is one of those games that does not need an instruction manual. It does a lot to imbue these characters with a lot of personality, which I I think this game does extremely well through their animations, their idle animations, um, like you were talking about, the dialogue that they share at the end of every level, which is, I believe, different in every level. I don't think it's just, you know, like, canned stuff no it's not generic it's it's specific it's usually about stuff from that level which is impressive what i really like about this is that this feels like a game that could have been turned into a cartoon but doesn't feel like it was pandering in the way that like maybe a battletoads was like hey this should be a cartoon right this should be the next ninja turtles right you know what i'm saying it's just got so much character and personality that I think if somebody had scooped this up and decided to make this into a cartoon or, or a comic book or something, uh, it would have fit right in. But again, like it, it's it's not it doesn't feel like overbearing. It no, it's it's not desperate. It's just it's just that you get the sense that the people making this game had a lot of fun making it and were just really really delighted by what the what they were making. Yeah, absolutely. And for a team that was you know probably. Pretty fresh. I mean, this is a company that had only been around since 1991. So, like, you know, two years later, they're making this. I mean, obviously, um, one of those guys, the CEO of Interplay at the time, uh, I think another one of them was like a programmer or something at, at Interplay before kind of forming this company, which is where I think some of that experience comes from. But yeah, just really hitting the ground running with this one. And it's such a unique thing in the library at this point. For sure. You know, I, I think some games have tried to do what this game is going for, you know, to a lesser extent, like maybe like King Arthur's World was trying to marry puzzling and platforming, though it was more like a real-time strategy and platforming kind of mashup. But we've seen a lot of games that have tried mashing two concepts and we're always, you know, saying things like, I, I applaud the effort. I like that they tried to do this and I wish that somebody else had picked up that baton and kept running with it because I think there's a good idea there. But ultimately, I don't think this performs well. This is magnificent. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I super agree with all of that. Uh, and the one other thing I did want to mention that's really cool is uh, this game's use of a password 
feature for different level select because uh, each level at the start of it you're given the password to get back to this level if you have to turn the game off and come back and the passwords are short they're you know four four characters long and they're usually just you know just something that's easily memorable uh, but if you did have to write it down uh, it's very easy to get back to whatever level you left off at so there's not the expectation that you're going to have to repeat all these levels from the beginning every time you start the game. And that's really good. It's really smart. Uh, you were saying before a thing that I had not noticed. The passwords are all just like a combination of consonants and numbers. So there's never a thing where you're going to be like, oh, God, was that a zero or an O? Or was that a, a one or an I? You know, it's it's yeah, it's really like it's like they even thought that through. Uh, and that's uh, that's really cool. And I appreciate that a whole lot here. I feel like this game was made being generous to the player. You know, a lot of games of this era did a lot of things to try to prevent people from renting the game so that they would you know have to buy it instead. And a lot of times that thing that they would do is just make the game really, really difficult. So you would hit a wall in the first level and then, th- you know, I guess they were thinking, well, now you're going to have to go and, and buy the game because you're never going to get good at it. You know, just, you know, in the, the short bursts that you play it is a rental. But I think that just makes people frustrated and turns them off of the game completely and they would never buy it. This game is kind of perfect is getting people to go from rental to purchase because you rent this one. You can make progress pretty easily. Like the first level is pretty simple. Then you're given a password. It's just four characters, easy to write down. And I think this, you know, just the amount of content that's in this game would be the thing that would get people to go out and purchase it after playing it as a rental. Because not only did you have a really good first experience with it as a rental and know that there's a lot more stuff waiting for you, but also it's really easy for you to just pick up where you left off. You just input that very short password into the game after you've bought it. And you've basically got your progress back. It's it's a really smart design that is friendly to the player and, and friendly to the consumer. And I, I, I just I really appreciate that a lot. This is just a really amazing game. This is one that really just has me feeling like oh, I really should have picked this one up back in the day. I know. Yeah, me too. I really would have enjoyed this. Um, I, I think, you know, the one problem it had going for it was that. It wasn't like a big established brand or even a big established company at this point. So. You know, it didn't have a lot of clout to work with, you know, like Nintendo Power couldn't say, oh, yeah, these are the people who made this other really great game that everybody loved. Right. Yeah. So it was probably a harder sell in that regard. But yeah, I think I would have loved this game as a kid. Yeah, uh, I agree. I I absolutely would have as well. And yeah, unfortunately, I did not play this as a kid, but uh, I, I'm sure I would have really liked it. And yeah, I, I regret that I did not have that experience. But hey, it is still a really good game today. And I can really recommend anybody go back and, and pick this up and, and play it. There is one other thing I wanted to mention here. The release of the Blizzard Arcade Collection, which is a, a re-release of this game as well as several other games that Blizzard made back in this this era. The ones you actually just mentioned in the in the sort of like lead up to this uh rock and roll racing and blackthorn and you know it's it's good that those are out there it's good that you know there's a a way to to play this on like modern systems which is cool but the thing that is especially cool about that 
is that the folks who made that collection, the good people at Digital Eclipse, did a really cool thing where they have multiple versions of each of these games presented on that collection, and also a kind of ultimate version of the game that combines features from different ones to to make a kind of better than the original version. And for The Lost Vikings, the thing they did is they added in the additional levels that were made for the, the Sega Genesis Mega Drive version. There were five original, five additional levels made. They they effectively added those into a version of the Super Nintendo game, which has most people generally agree the better control setup. The kind of uh, version of it that that you can play on there is is actually even a little bit more complete than the Super Nintendo version. So that's a good thing to know, and it's a, a good collection just in general. I think it's a good thing to support people doing really smart, thoughtful archival work for, for games, because there's a lot of good stuff on there, like concept art and documentaries where they interview people that worked on these games. Uh, that is a great modern way to play this game. But if you don't have access to that and you just want to go back and play the Super Nintendo version, this is a phenomenal version of the game so you shouldn't feel like you you need to go out and get that version of this in order to play it but if you do i think you'll find some really cool stuff there as well yeah yeah definitely if, if you've got access to like a switch or a ps4 i i would recommend definitely pick that up yeah even if it was just the lost vikings i think it's 20 dollars. regardless you know it's a really well put together collection it's not some kind of cheap cash grab and it is a really well put together spotlight being shown on some of some of the lesser known blizzard games from from kind of their early years so it's not it's not expensive and it's a lot of really good stuff uh including interestingly i think the only piece of commercially available 32x emulation uh which is a weird thing they've included the 32x version of blackthorn on that collection which is ugly as sin but does have some extra stuff and has completely redone graphics as far as i know the only piece of 32x emulation that you can pay money for at this time there you go <laughs> 20 bucks that's an overrater i'm gonna I'm, I'm probably gonna go get that after we're done recording here today let's go back to talking about the super nintendo version now and uh let's find a place for it on our list here okay so i'm thinking of the place i'm going to start here I'm going to start way up there at number 17, which is Lemmings. I think this is kind of, you know, it's a similar sort of concept. It's a, it's a puzzle platformer. I agree, yeah. But you have more direct control over the characters in this game, which I think is a smart move in a 2D platformer. I think this game is a lot more fun than Lemmings. What do you think? Very much agree with that. Yeah. I think maybe we could ask the question, is this going to be the highest ranked game of 1993 if we compare it to Cybernator at 13, which is currently the highest ranked 1993 game. Cybernator is a very good game, but I think I I think I had more fun playing this than that. I think I I think it probably has more going on than Cybernator in a lot of ways. You know, Cybernator kind of feels like a, a pretty um complex game in some ways. It, it's not. It's not overly complicated or anything like that, but I think that there is a little bit of a simplicity to the Lost Vikings that makes it a lot easier to just pick up and play um, right away than Cybernator's got. Also, I think it's a more unique game. Like, I don't think anybody else was really even trying to do exactly what the Lost Vikings is doing so well. I think this will go above that for sure. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna pitch another game now. Maybe for the purposes of just establishing a ceiling, but also maybe not. 
Out of This World at number eight. Mm, interesting. It's a really different kind of platformer. It, it, it's a little bit puzzly in its own way. I, I think we ranked it as high as we did because we, we were surprised by how well it worked, because I, I think we were both expecting it to be a lot jankier than it was. For sure. Really visually impressive that they managed to port that game to the Super Nintendo in the state that it was in. Yeah. But, you know, Lost Vikings, still really well produced really solid. I don't know. This is actually maybe a tougher call than I was expecting. Now that I'm really thinking about this, does, does lost Vikings belong above out of this world? What do you think? I don't know if this sets a a bad precedent or not, but I would say one thing that the lost Vikings has that maybe does put it above out of this world is that instead of being a kind of scaled down port of a game that already existed on other more technologically advanced hardware. The Lost Vikings is a Super Nintendo original. It's a game that was made for this system, and it feels extremely comfortable on it. Like, it moves really well. It has lots of really nice, you know, very detailed, cartoony sprite work. And, you know, I think that it is maybe leveraging the Super Nintendo itself in in ways that are are more effective than out of this world is doing. Yeah. I I don't think I would want to maybe put it because it's a super Nintendo original that, you know, that like that there's some inherent merit or demerit because of that. I hear what you're saying. Cause like on the one hand, like the lost Vikings, because it was built, you know, from the ground up for the super Nintendo, they're kind of, you know, seeing what they can do with the hardware and building a really unique experience around it that, um, you know, that that maybe fills a hole that like isn't really filled, you know, like I, I am always complaining how it feels like too many games of this era just feel beholden to like the, the Mario Brothers style run and jump platforming and just can't imagine another way of telling a story. What I'm trying to say here is that they're taking the Super Nintendo strengths, which is, you know, 2D platforming and doing something pretty unique with it. You know, the kind of gameplay that, you know, is differs somewhat from what we normally see in a way that I really, really appreciate. Out of this world, honestly, like, that just feels like a game that should have been a complete mess. Like, it has no business being as good as it is on the Super Nintendo. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it also, to be clear, Out of this world is doing some stuff that this game's not even trying to do. Like, it's, Out of this world is like a really cinematic, like, kind of emotional experience in a way. Uh, and it's pulling that off, so which is really impressive. You know, the Super Nintendo doesn't really do polygons, so to make everything as kind of polygonal as it looked was probably a real feat in and of itself. You know, so I, I feel like there's a lot of craft on display with both of these games, just coming at it from very different directions. So I would say, like, where you're going to get stuck in out of this world is, like, timing you know there are going to be times where it's like okay i gotta perform these precise movements here because you know the yeah. the character is sort of on a like a like a cycle you, i guess you could say for like things like running and jumping whereas with the lost vikings where you're gonna get stuck is just like figuring out the puzzle right the kind of frustrated that i get with out of this world is a frustration that comes from feeling like i am not in control right yeah not as in control as i would like to be where i don't get that feeling from Lost Vikings when I'm stuck. It's it's all just up in my head completely where I'm like, just like, okay, yeah. what am I supposed to do right here? What What does the game want me to do? I mean, like everything always comes down to personal preference. So I really shouldn't say it's personal preference as if like that's 
a thing that should just be discarded outright. But I like games in which I have the freedom of like still being in control of my characters and just given time to think through the solution to a puzzle more than I like the idea of just I've got to try this sequence over and over again until I perfect it. And, you know, like that there's a tedium in that that I find just really unpleasant. So maybe just based on that alone, maybe this goes above out of this world. I think that's a good argument, honestly. Like, I appreciate you bringing the argument more back to, like, what these games are actually doing and, like, the ways in which they're generating challenge. Because, yeah, I think that personally, I would also prefer what The Lost Vikings is doing. And I feel like when I fail in The Lost Vikings, pretty much every time my thought is, okay, well, I should have thought that out better. Or, okay, I get what I did wrong now. And the next time through, I can I can approach it differently or just be more careful. You know, I, I think it's a good thing that in The Lost Vikings, frequently, once you figure out how to get to the end of the level and solve the puzzles that get you there, you can do that really fast. Like, your next time through, you know, even if you failed the previous time, it only takes like a minute or so to get back to where you failed. I do think that's probably enough for me to put this game above out of this world. This basically boils down to, it's like, are you looking for a, a more physical challenge or are you looking for a more mental challenge? And yeah. I completely get that, like, there are people who are all about the physical challenge when it comes to video games. I mean, like, the speedrunning community is kind of built on that, right? Like, of just yeah, sure. nailing the timing of certain button presses, like getting frame-perfect jumps and all this to exploit yeah, yeah. cracks in the game. And I completely respect that. I love watching people do that. That is not for me, though. Personal preference. And that's what any ranked list is ever going to be, right? Yeah. The, the, the place where these kinds of comparisons do come down so... If, so... Uh, you know, heavily to personal feelings is when the games are, are all operating on a really high level of quality. All right. So uh, enough about us. Uh, it sounds like this is going to go above out of this world. We've got Final Fantasy 2 at number seven above that. Hmm. Now, you see, those are so such different games that it, this becomes a harder comparison. It's been so long since we played Final Fantasy 2. I still really like Final Fantasy 2 a.k.a. Final Fantasy 4, might be my favorite Final Fantasy, honestly. I think that Final Fantasy 2 is a really, uh, especially for this time period, is a really forward-thinking game in its own way. And it has great music, really some, some really good game design. I think there's still a reason why that game is number seven on our list. Okay, so here's the thing for me that we haven't really talked about. With The Lost Vikings, one thing that is very good about it, but also also just worth considering, is the fact that I feel like The Lost Vikings maybe is a game that is enjoyable to play in short bursts, and that, you know, you might want to play, like, a couple of levels of it, and then come back to it later using the password, say, the password system. Whereas with Final Fantasy 2, I think it's really easy to play that game for long stretches of time and just kind of get into, like, a flow with it, you know? Yeah. I think for me personally, probably I like that flow. Like, I like that feeling that I can sit down and, like, have, like, a really fun time, you know, kind of going on this adventure. Yeah. Lost Vikings, you know... I, I can play that for a little while, leave it, and then come back to it later and have a really good time in short bursts with it. Yeah, and and for me, I think I would prefer the the short bursts or the ability to be played in short bursts over, you know, something that's maybe 
you know, requires a longer uh-huh. period of time to really get that flow. So that might be a little bit of a stalemate for us. But one feature that we have not talked about with Lost Vikings is you can play a two player. Is that two player co-op on that? I don't know. Uh, I don't remember. Uh, Wikipedia, the game offers a two player cooperative mode which each player simultaneously controls one Viking is, and is allowed to change control to the third. That's pretty significant, actually, because that would that would be a really interesting way to play this that I think would be very fun. Yeah, yeah. So, hmm, could that tip the scales? I mean, I could definitely see, you know, a game like Final Fantasy being good for group play. I think RPGs can be really good for that. They absolutely can be. The nature of a turn-based system allows for other people to have some input and... They can still be entertaining as spectator events as well. Yeah, I think RPGs are, are potentially really good hangout games for for that reason. Yeah, so I don't want to downplay that when we talk about like, oh, this game's got two player so co op, so that must be that must mean it's better, you know. But but on the other hand, like that does change things up a little bit. You know, that honestly might be enough to give it an edge for me uh, on this one. I think I could. I think I could go that way. I, I do still think that you know. Maybe a few of the flaws of Final Fantasy 2 is that, you know, it, the production is good. It's not Lost Vikings good. And I and I think that is something that's going to be improved upon in the next iteration of Final Fantasy. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Final Fantasy 2 is a very early Super Nintendo game. Like, visually, it does not look that much better in some ways than an NES game. Yeah, than an NES Final Fantasy in some ways, yeah. So next one up is Soul Blazer. And I don't, I don't know. I don't. This is, this is another really tough one for me. It is for me, too. My gut instinct right now is just to say, no, I think this is the ceiling. I think Soul Blazer is its own sort of really creative, different sort of game. Uh, I think it is really well made, and there's not a lot of direct comparisons you can make to other games on the system here. Can you think of any arguments for, for The Lost Vikings going above it? There's quite a bit of adventure game style puzzling happening in Lost Vikings, that's also happening in Soul Blazer, even though those are, those are primarily, you know, Soul Blazer is primarily like a, a top-down adventure game, and Lost Vikings is primarily a 2D platformer. I think I got to give it to Soul Blazer. This is where it stops for the Lost Vikings. Yeah, I, I think that like all of that personality that we really like about Lost Vikings, I don't think it quite beats Soul Caliber, uh, Soul Blazer, Soul Caliber. Soul Blazer in that department, you know, I think Soul Blazer has got a lot of personality that's that's just kind of charming. I think just barely it's going to be Soul Blazer, but yeah, it, it's a tough call. It's been a tough call for all of these, honestly. Like, yeah. whenever we get into the top 10, these are some of the more difficult, the, the most difficult conversations to have. Absolutely. But yeah, I feel pretty good about that. I think just by a whisker, a uh, Viking whisker, Soul Blazer takes it. I think so, too. So it sounds like this is going to be our new number seven. Oh, congratulations. The Lost Vikings. Yeah, we finally have something from 93 crack in the top 10. Yeah. Will it be the last one from 93 to crack the top 10? Uh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll really have to see. And uh, so but that's going to do it for now. Um, the Lost Vikings. Number seven. All right, everybody. So now that we've done that, uh, we're going to do something we haven't done in a little while. It is uh, time to get serious. Time. 
time to get serious. One problem that we're kind of running into right now is because we are now doing this on a biweekly basis, things happen. And uh, sometimes, you know, you have a podcast go up as a political situation is occurring. And then by the time you get to address it, it seems to have kind of fallen out of the news cycle, which is probably why you're not going to hear nearly as many of these from us going forward, because it's it's hard to keep up. But I did want to talk about the situation with Israel and Palestine, because, um, yeah, as of recording this, we're not hearing about it as much. Listening to the mainstream media, you might assume that it's all behind us now or, you know, the, the, the fighting is, is stopped or is at least, you know, uh, significantly less than it was and that things are OK, but things aren't OK. There are still things happening, regardless of whether or not there are still bombings being done on Palestinian people are being subjected to, you know, bombing raids and everything else. This is still uh, an apartheid state. Israel's government and the IDF are uh, basically had been doing an ethnic cleansing and they will do it again. So I would urge you that even when the situation is not getting as much of your attention through the, the mainstream media, don't ignore it. Um, please, if you can, continue donating to uh, charities that are trying to help the Palestinian people, especially Palestinian children who don't understand why any of this is happening. And don't be led into believing that this is a two sides issue. One side has significantly more power than the other. That's I don't have anything to add to that, but I, I co-sign everything you said. All I'll say in, in closing is that the Israeli government is trying to make it as difficult as possible for the Palestinians to survive where they live in their homeland. And um, we should be helping them. Um, and we should be uh, taking our government to task when they support the oppressive side and doing whatever we can to try and stop that. And speaking of people making it difficult for people to live where they are, um, some really horrible anti-trans bills have passed in Texas and Tennessee recently as well. Yes, they Yes, they have. And yeah, I just wanted to uh, call out that as well. Say that's bull, especially if we happen to have any um, any listeners in either of those states. Um Please contact your representatives and tell them this is not okay. And, uh, and if, if you don't, uh, donate to pro-trans causes if you are able to right now to help them out. And uh, that's all I got for today. Like I said, um, because it is difficult to stay relevant with this stuff on a biweekly basis, we're probably not going to do these quite as often. Do not take that for us caring about it. Also, do not take this as anybody telling us to shut up because um, I don't care about that. We don't have uh, bosses or like advertisers to to placate or anything. Yeah. And I will happily lose anyone as a listener who, who you know, thinks that we should shut up about this stuff. So if we're not talking about it as much, it is merely because we don't think we can stay relevant with it on on this schedule and no other reason all right well with all that out of the way um that'll do it for april of 1993 and that means we get to talk about an issue of nintendo power next time we're going to be talking the may 1993 issue uh we already flipped through it um and I, I'm looking forward to this one. We were a little bit less than enthused about the last issue, but I think this one, um, there's some stuff to be really excited about in this next one. So, yeah, there's a lot of really good stuff in this one. So please join us next time for Snescapades Playing with Power as we look into the May 1993 issue of Nintendo Power. And until next time, uh, I'm Emmy Zero. I'm Steve Buckley. Play it loud. Thank you.
Our intro-outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoax, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at technoax.com. That's T-E-K-N-O-A-X-E dot com. Uh, I love the bit at the beginning of Deadly Premonition where where Francis York Morgan is talking seemingly on the phone to somebody about these two people who are in like a really codependent abusive relationship and as he talks it becomes clear that he's just describing the tom and jerry cartoons (laughs) um oh my god yes uh yeah what i liked about that scene was that it seemed like really lazy writing and that they just used the names tom and jerry (laughs) right yeah is like names for York to be talking about something and then he actually explicitly says that that he's talking about the Tom and Jerry cartoon it's like oh okay yeah I I love that all right yeah this is a good way to get introduced to a character (laughs) yeah Tom and Jerry has always kind of like had this weird space for me in my head where it's like you've got the Warner Brothers cartoons you've got the Disney cartoons and all those characters and tom and jerry is just like off in its own thing it's almost like you know you've got like the coke family you got the pepsi family and then like what's dr pepper doing over here they're just doing their own thing yeah right tom and jerry the dr pepper of classic hollywood animation (laughs) yeah that sounds meaner than it should (laughs) i like dr pepper it's my favorite one it's my favorite soda oh okay all right i'm a coca-cola man myself you know but that's clearly the 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 takeaway here pepsi Go f*** yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I said that because most of this is probably getting cut. <laughs> <laughs>